Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 77. Uh, this week it's myself, Michael, with Gladys and Mark, and we have a guest, Anthony Shaw, who's here to talk to us about kind of the security implications of infrastructure as code. Uh, but before we get to our guest, uh, why don't we take a little lap around the news? Uh, Mark, why don't you kick things off? One of the things that I've been uh, thinking about a lot lately, and it's actually in our, um, we captured it in the, the security architecture design session, module three, that uh, released a, a month or two ago. The link between zero trust and security operations, or SOC as some people like to call it. So one of the things that we found that's really interesting is, you know, a lot of folks are familiar with, hey, why would we think about zero trust? Because, hey, the firewall um, ain't going to protect your cloud apps. It's not going to protect the data and the systems that are outside of your traditional network perimeter, right? And so that dynamic and sort of the urge to work on access control, which is extremely rational and correct, um, is is absolutely correct. The the thing that is interesting is that a lot of folks aren't necessarily seeing that the same exact dynamic of hey, we need to protect stuff wherever it happens to be. You know, working from home, out in the cloud, etc. Also is happening to the detect and respond part of you know the the NIST cybersecurity framework lifecycle. You know, identify. Protect, detect, respond, recover. You know, ultimately, you do need to also do um, threat detection and response and recovery of assets. You know, even if it is a person working from home, even if it is in the cloud, and so the the exact same underlying drivers for that are, are also affecting and, and and forcing a change in the way people think about security operations. You know, adding new tools, getting some asset specific stuff. You know, uh, XDR tools is the easiest way to to, uh, to deal with that. You know, uh, extended detection and response um, because if you got Defender for Endpoint agent. On it, or you know, CrowdStrike, or pick your favorite flavor. Um, you know, Defender uh, for Cloud. Obviously, my favorite is Defender for Endpoint. Just in case anyone's wondering, uh, but you got Defender for Cloud that's getting asset specific around the various different, um, uh, you know, Azure Storage, SQL, um, multi-cloud, uh, you know, VMs, etc. Like lots and lots of stuff. Um, but ultimately, you know, that same thing is driven by that. Hey, we need to protect at something other than. The firewall edge, um, and you know, taking an IDS and then blocking an IP—that's that's just not how it works anymore. And so, it's just a lot of folks kind of miss that connection. So that's one of the key drivers, along with you know, modern tooling and alignment with the business that that we talk about in that architecture design session workshop. So, you know, been top of mind for me lately. So that's that's one of the things I've been focusing on. Defender for Endpoint is one of my favorite, and actually because of that, I, the first news that I'm going to be uh, talking about is uh, related to Defender uh, for Endpoint. Last year, we um, announced uh, the addition of device inventory view as part of Defender for Endpoint, and we've been integrating uh, more and more, uh, including Defender for IoT. To build on top of all this work, uh, we are expanding our device di- discovery capability uh, through the use of uh, Risk IQ. So now uh, with this integration, we could discover internet-facing devices, um, and and this is in uh, public uh, preview. What I I love about this is that besides the threat intelligence, internal threat intelligence that we are using uh, with our products, adding this capability uh, enables us to see the services from a different perspective, from an external perspective. We have the capability of having better analysis of threats in the environment and mitigating uh, those uh, issues. 
The next news that I wanted to talk about is, uh, is a DDoS attack, IP protection. Basically, this is an enterprise-grade uh, DDoS protection and at a more affordable price point. I am happy be- uh, about this because I, I've seen uh, DDoS increasing, actually. There's several articles talking about how it's been becoming more frequent for organizations to have to deal with it. Even personally, actually, uh, I, I've been in troubleshooting all the time my uh, family internet and I see uh, all those DDoS attacks. So I I am really happy that they have created this uh, more affordable uh, type of uh, solution. So if you have time, just uh, review the links uh, that we are providing uh, to you as part of uh, the podcast website. And that's all for me. Yeah, I've got a few items. Um, The first one is uh, we're now in public preview uh, Microsoft Defender for APIs with Azure API Management. This is really cool. It interacts, obviously, as the name suggests, it interacts with uh, with API management and provides a whole other layer of defense um, on top of your APIs. Um, I, sh- I was actually talking to the uh, the program manager for it the other day, and uh, we're trying to get her on podcast to do an episode because I actually think it's a really, really cool, really cool technology. Um, next one is this is kind of an interesting one. We now have in general availability the ability to ping your Azure load balancer. Now you may think, well, okay, that's not very exciting. Well, it actually kind of is because historically you had to do a TCP ping. You couldn't do an ICMP t- uh, ICMP um, ping. Well, now you. You can. Um, obviously, you need to, well, not obviously, but perhaps it sounds obvious, but you need to make sure that you have a network security group configured allowing ICMP traffic inbound. But other than that, yeah, it's great to see because you know ICMP is just so much more lightweight than doing a full TCP connection. Another one is Azure Cosmos DB for PostgreSQL now supports customer managed keys for data encryption. And I've said this so many times, but I'll say it again, that there's three massive areas that we're seeing across the whole company. And that is managed identities for clients, uh, you know, using AAD credentials, customer managed keys, and uh, using private endpoints. So this is great to see yet another product, in this case, something in my backyard, Azure Cosmos DB, now supporting uh, customer managed keys for data encryption at rest for uh, the Postgres PostgreSQL interface. And last, but by no means least, mainly because I just discovered this over the last few days. So if you're writing C-sharp code, for example, or any kind of managed code, you may be familiar with the system.data.sql client uh, assembly. Well, that has been deprecated in favor of the Microsoft.data.sql client assembly. And there's a really good reason why you should start to migrate to Microsoft.data.sql client and that is because in SQL Server 2022, we added a new option in encrypt. So encrypt used to be either false or true. It's a terrible name. It should really be like, you know, protect or something because it's actually enforcing TLS. So encrypt equals false means obviously no TLS. Encrypt equals true means use TLS. Well, now we have encrypt equals strict. And that disables the trust server certificate directive as well. Uh, it does a strict certificate check. The thing is, the system.data.sql client assembly is essentially on life support. It won't see any major changes being made to it whatsoever. Uh, it doesn't know about encrypt equals strict. And so if you actually have some code and you want to use like this strict check, it's not going to work. 
So start to think about you know, migrating your code over to using Microsoft.data.sqlclient because we support Encrypt equals strict. There's other reasons in there as well. So for example, there's a new, um, uh, we're trying to move everyone over to using MSAL, which is the um, OAuth2 uh, library versus ADAL, which is the Azure Active Directory library or the Active Directory library. So that's not supported in um, ADAL. Is, is not supported in Microsoft.data.security. Um, we've moved over to the more modern MSAL. So there's lots of good reasons to move to Microsoft.data.sqlclient. Um, All right, that's the news out of the way. I hope that last one made sense. If you weren't listening, just, just use Microsoft.data.sqlclient rather than System.data.sqlclient. All right, let's get, now we've got the news out of the way, let's move our attention to our guest. As I mentioned before, this week we have Anthony Shaw, who's here to talk to us about infrastructure as code, but through a security lens. So Anthony, thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, would you like to take a moment and just introduce yourself to our listeners? Um, hey, Michael. I normally listen to the podcast whilst walking my dog, so... This is novel to be in my office instead, but I'm the Python developer advocate while I run the Python developer advocacy team at Microsoft. I've been here for a couple of years and worked in cloud uh, for my whole career. And my focus over the last eight years has been on Python. I've published a book called CPython Internals, which is about the Python compiler, uh, also a fellow of the Python Software Foundation. So I've kind of gone quite deep on Python as a language over the last eight years, but uh, essentially worked in cloud since I was in school. So security pops up a lot when you stick things on the internet. So early on when I was in technical support, basically going and mopping up all the spills of people publishing applications on the internet with poor or no security and then, then getting hacked. And whether that was leakage or just defacement or things like that, kind of working with those uh, customers early on. So yeah, that's been an interest of mine, been application security specifically. Uh, yeah, here to talk about infrastructure as code and kind of how developers now need to think not just about the application security, but actually start thinking about infrastructure security as well, because often the infrastructure as code template is actually an artifact of the code. So they're kind of spilling into each other. Yeah, I like the fact that you brought up this notion of infrastructure and kind of development. There's a, a class that I used to give inside of Microsoft, just just for personal reasons more than anything else, which was basically teaching people, teaching infrastructure people how to use developer tools. Because even if you're not a developer and you're an infrastructure person, you've got to know how to use basic developer tools. And in many cases, that might mean sitting in front of Visual Studio Code, that definitely involves you know repositories and version control, knowing Git, potentially GitHub, uh, depending on how you, you know, where you're storing your your, your repos. So yeah, there's the, the time has come now where people, even if you're not a developer, you have to understand basic developer tooling because that's you know and CI/CD pipelines as well because that's basically the way the world the way the world is going. And you also you know pointed out you know Python. I mean people you you know often use Python for yeah, you know, for infrastructure as well. And so, congratulations, you got to learn development all over again. <laughs> is that a is that like a fair comment, or am I just like you know, just toot my own horn here? Yeah, no, that's absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of whose responsibility is it? And I think when we talk about security, the every security is everybody's responsibility. <laughs> um, but Amen, that kind brother. Of over, <laughs> overlooks that kind of overlooks that. You know, you, you need to have domain expertise and security 
and not everybody can have that. When developers now are saying, okay, here's my application that I've been working on. Here's how you would deploy it to the cloud. And I can describe that in code now, in templates. Um, when do they work with a security team? Do they do their own security reviews? Do they need to understand the security implications of what they've put in that template? And both the development team need to understand those things. But also, I think, no matter what you're doing, whether it's, I mean, IT admins need to understand code nowadays. You're using PowerShell or and another scripting language to do pretty much everything in AD tenants or in Azure tenants or in Office 365 tenants. So like that is your interface to the cloud now. So you need to understand those programming tools and you can't just have a shared drive where you put all the scripts and then everybody writes to it. You need to have some sort of version control. And then once you introduce version control like Git, then you should start to think about how do we automatically check the scripts that we have, the templates that we have, the code that we have, because developers are used to doing this. Like we've been doing CI, at least the CI part, not necessarily the CD part for a long time. So, you know, when we check in code, push code up, like all the tests should run automatically and say, oh, you know, you changed this, but it broke this other thing. So we we want to verify that as early as possible. Um, and that's not just the tests from a code perspective now. There's a lot of other things that we verify typically in a in a CI process, which would include like style, like have we used names for variables that people don't like, but also like have we made spelling mistakes? Like we've added more and more automated tools in that process. And that's kind of where I see it bleeding into uh, infrastructure security in particular. Yeah, and if I can add sort of my two cents on it, like in a way, infrastructure people, which I am one, and so my questions will definitely be coming from that sort of uh, you know that origin story. I'm definitely a security person now, but started you know my IT career in the infrastructure side. Is like it's easy to forget sometimes, uh, you know, if you're not Michael Howard that helped build Windows, right? That all those things that we're used to hitting setup exe and installing or, you know, clicking on and making a VM, that's all code that was all developed. And it's just that that line is getting a little bit fuzzier where it used to be, hey, we, we got this CD out of the box from Microsoft and then we do the thing and occasionally run an update. I mean, it's code at the end of the day. And so it's just that as you need to do custom things and there isn't a prepackaged SaaS app or box software in the old days, you know, it's it's code, right? And so you need to be able to have a custom app that does that custom business requirement. And so I, I sort of see it as a little bit of like a back to the future or sort of like a redefining the line between, you know, what is packaged for you and supported and maintained by a vendor versus, hey, you're gonna do something slightly custom. You know, you're you're gonna have to potentially put in some code or copy paste somebody else's code and then make sure that that stuff is secure in the code rules kind of way versus the infrastructure rules kind of way. So you've been uh, talking about infrastructure as code and uh, security. What kind of issues are you seeing um, that are being addressed? Yeah, so there's five major things that we've been seeing when looking at the security of the infrastructure that's being defined in the code. The number one is the network security. So now that in the cloud, everything is essentially a software-defined network. When you create networks between applications and databases or different 
data layers or when you're defining what is public, what is not, um, whether you have VPNs, things like that. All of that is a kind of a network definition. An application template can include its own network and its own network infrastructure. So what is the security of that network? And network security is its entire, you know, it's a whole domain in itself. And people do that for a profession and it's extremely complicated. So it's not it's kind of unreasonable for a developer to suddenly go, oh, I'm going to define the network and the security spec. So net, yeah, network security is number one. Uh, number two is, I guess, secrets and secret management. So you can, if you wanted to, hard code the secret for the database, you know, the admin username and password. You can hard code that in the template if you wanted to. You shouldn't, but you can. Um, and then you've also got secrets to pretty much everything else. So you know, your monitoring infrastructure, your database backend, your caching, like every time you bolt on a service that is used by the application, the application needs to know how to authenticate that service. So, you know, that links into the third one, which is when and where do you use managed identity and which service is compatible with that and can you connect that in? So managed identity kind of links links into that as well. And then the, the next one is the actual code itself and who or what can change that code because once you've got the application up and running you're typically going to be replacing the code on that on a frequent basis so you know you don't want just you know anybody to go and change the code in the production server or even the test environment um so how do you verify the code that gets published who it is or often if it's an automation tool, like where that's coming from, and then make sure that somebody hasn't, you know, injected some strange code or even just by mistake sometimes managed to deploy to that environment. Yeah, so those are the the four major things that we're seeing, but there's a few other bits and pieces that are popping up as well. Uh, the fifth is kind of what application security requirements do you put in around there? So, you know, what types of firewalls do you have? What kind of auditing do you have? So within the kind of the Azure security suite, then what do you include? Okay, I've got to pull the newbie card here because I, I understand the concept of IC and, and how awesome it is and sort of the, the automation power of it as a general point. Can you give us, you know, me included, our audience, you know, an overview of kind of what is IAC? Like what does it do and how does it work? Just, you know, a couple minutes sort of just quick explanation just to make sure that we we understand this because like all that stuff sounded familiar but i wasn't sure what to framework to hang that in yeah sure so you traditionally used to have to deploy things whether that's application or infrastructure by going through a gui you know like the portal or the installer you know you talked about the old style installers on the desktop um and then you would have a set of instructions saying, okay, this is how you would install this product or this is how you would configure it. So, you know, go in the portal, pick this option, change this dropdown. So when you're building an application, normally you would have a sandbox. So you would, you know, put all the products in place, configure all the services, get it working. And then when you want to repeat that process, you don't want to have to describe, you know, by hand, what you need to click on and which options you need to pick. So what you can do with infrastructure as code is you can basically ex take a snapshot of that and then describe it in code. It's not code like um, procedural code, it's more like a template. So ARM is a 
uh, ARM templates is one method of doing it. Bicep is another. Uh, there are also non-Microsoft specific ones like Terraform um, is an infrastructure as code tool. And basically what the infrastructure as code tool will do is it will look at the template. It will see that you've defined, let's say, a, a, a Vena and an app service. And maybe within that, you've got some uh, service principles. So you would define those in code and say what all of the parameters should be. And then the tool will look at your target environment let's say that's in azure and you've got a tenant and you say okay deploy this template to azure it will look at azure and say okay does that does that component already exist no okay let's let's deploy that and then it will check that all the settings match up with the code so that if somebody goes in and makes a change in the portal um, and doesn't actually capture that in the template the next time you run the template it will override that so basically it makes sure that you know, what is in the template actually matches what is running in the environment. Gotcha. And it does it enforce that over time or is it just sort of that initial setup for the app? It just the initial one. Um, if you run it again, it will override the settings. Um, so it's something called item idempotent or item or idempotent. This is a very strange word. Um, which is kind of common in DevOps tools where you've uh, basically describe something as code. The goal should be that the outcome will be the same no matter how many times you run it and no matter what the target looks like. So if the target doesn't exist, the outcome should be the same. If the target does exist, but it's configured weirdly, the outcome should be the same. Um, so that's kind of one of the principles of the infrastructure as code tools. Gotcha. So I think I've actually been exposed to this, um, you know, as a sort of the portal jockey, where it's a little button that I never really use that generates like the uh, the, the the technical configuration of things, like in the Azure portal. Yep. Uh, awesome. Thank you. That that helps a lot. Like uh, Mark, I'm also learning about uh, infrastructure as code. Actually, I've been playing with Bicep uh, lately. Um, just. Can you give a, a, a brief explanation why would you ask, uh, choose to use uh, Bicep or Terraform uh, versus ARM templates in order to do uh, infrastructure as code? Yeah, um, ARM is very, very verbose. So if you create an environment, um, I, kind of in principle, when you're deploying applications into Azure, uh, they should all be housed within a resource group. So you kind of use the resource group as the soft container or the boundary of that application. Um, what you can do in Azure is you can pick on a resource group and say, okay, create a template for that entire resource group. So it'll say, okay, if you wanted to deploy everything in that resource group again, here's what it would look like as a template. And it will give you that in ARM. Um if you go and export that for most applications, it's going to be thousands, if not tens of thousands of lines um, because there's a lot of settings in there. There's a lot of properties. It includes even things which you didn't override. So things which are the defaults, but you didn't override them, it will include all of that stuff in the template. Um, now that's fine if you want to just save that and take a snapshot and then going forward, but to actually work with it as either a developer or a security reviewer or just uh, an infrastructure expert, it's quite hard to kind of read through and understand what's going on. I find ARM is actually more a, a language that Azure speaks. <laughs> um, so BICEP is an abstraction uh, on top of ARM. So basically it's a different syntax 
and it's designed for people to actually write uh, templates for bicep um, and then bicep templates actually compile into arm so it's basically an abstraction layer on top of arm so that you don't have to define uh, all of the defaults you don't have to define um, so many of the dependencies and also you can set variables because you know let's say you've got a uh, a resource group and you've named everything um i don't know i've got a uh, a notebook on my desk with a unicorn on it you've, you've named it the unicorn application but the next time you deploy that you don't want to call it the unicorn application you want to call it something else so you would say okay that is a variable that's a thing which can change each time i deploy the template um so in bicep you can say okay that is an input so when you deploy that template, it will ask you what's the name you want to use, uh, and then it will go and populate all those fields. What I have learned is uh, very little, but um, um, I was trying to uh, basically assign uh, some roles uh, for each of uh, the subscriptions that I'm working on. I do a policy assignment, an Azure policy assignment. And uh, what I like uh, the most is how short it was uh, to input all these, so it allowed me to implement a lot of security uh, type of settings uh, uh, really fast. And I like re type of command because it, it basically puts the beginning of the template and then you have to fu- uh, fill up things. So um, if the listeners uh, want, I recommend Bicep. I haven't uh, played with ter- uh, Terraform, but uh, um, it's, it's really easy to use. All right, so one thing you sort of touched on before was the sort of things that you look for you know, when you're reviewing these, these, these templates. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, do you do it by hand? Do you have a tool to do it? I mean, is there a role here for Defender for DevOps? I mean, you know, like you said before, you, know, you could end up with an ARM template or ARM templates that are thousands of lines long. So what's a, you know, a quick way of doing that? Because you need to do it at scale eventually. So, uh, so what are the best practices around that? So how we were doing it before was we would deploy the template uh, and then go into uh, Defender and do a review of that resource group. And that, that would then come back with, oh, you've, you know, this setting is not really ideal. Um, you haven't used managed identity where you could have done or kind of highlights any kind of security risks and then prioritizes those. Uh, and what we would do is then go back and look at the template, make adjustments, Deploy it again, run the um, the audit again, and then see kind of what the what the differences were. So that's kind of the old the old way of doing it. Um, there's a couple of challenges with that approach. Um, I mean, the, the obvious one is you've de- you've deployed the infrastructure. So if the security issue that it's picked up is significant, I mean, we were doing that with test environments, so there's no exfiltration risk. I mean, there's no secure data on there, but still. You know, you shouldn't really be deploying infrastructure to a public network and then seeing if it's insecure because that ship's kind of sailed already. So what we've been doing instead recently is using Defender for DevOps, uh, which is in preview. And within Defender for DevOps, there's a tool called Template Analyzer. We've basically integrated that into our CI/CD process. So what we have in the uh, the repositories, the code repository for each of these applications that we're building is we've got the code, so the actual app itself, uh, and then we've got a folder which has got all of the bicep templates. Um, and then in GitHub Actions, but it works for uh, Azure DevOps as well, 
um, we've got a, basically a workflow that would then go and verify that the application works, like runs all the tests and stuff like that. And then the next thing it does is runs template analyzer. Um, and then it checks whether there are any security issues in the template before it has actually been deployed. So what that's picked up is a lot of the stuff which I've mentioned already, which is around um, how you're managing secrets, uh, network security, who and how um, code can be deployed, and then kind of where managed identity is being used as well. So it actually highlights a lot of that stuff up front. The good thing about that is you've always got, um, in application testing, you've kind of got this time to fix versus the cost of the fix. And the principle is, the sooner you spot the bug after writing it, the cheaper and quicker it is to fix it. So, you know, if you make a bug in the code and you run the tests locally on your machine and it tells you that's broken, you can fix it and that takes five minutes. Um, if you only discover the bug because you've shipped it to a million people uh, and you have to patch it and ship a hotfix, that costs you a lot more money. So it's the same with this Um Basically, shift what we're trying left. to always cheaper, always better. <laughs> yeah, cheaper and faster. So, you know, if we can spot a potential security issue based on either the initial check in of the template or a change, then people can make that adjustment. So, you know, if we've got a repository that's got the infrastructure defined and someone on the team comes in and makes a change to the infrastructure template, then the tool would run automatically. And in their change request, in their pull request, it would actually highlight that line and say, ah, you shouldn't really do that. Here's the reasons why. Uh, here's a link to the documentation. And then when you're reviewing that code change before even approving it and merging it in or even getting it anywhere near deploying it, um, you've already had a discussion about whether that is um, you know, creating a security risk um, or if it's a uh, false positive, then you know, the reasons why, and let's document that. And it all gets captured in um, basically the security tab in GitHub or, or alternatively within Azure DevOps. You know, there's actually a really good analogy here. I, I just thought about it. If you're deploying some resources and then running Microsoft Defender for Cloud to see if you've got vulnerabilities, that's a lot like a dynamic analysis scan. But if you're actually looking at the code for potential issues, that's very similar to a static analysis scan. Now, what's interesting is in the Microsoft Security Development Lifecycle, we actually require both. Um, you've got to do a static analysis scan and a dynamic analysis scan because often they find different things. So would you recommend that people, even if they're, I don't know what the answer is, but here we go anyway. You know, if you're, Even if you are using Defender for DevOps, even if you are doing analysis of your infrastructure as code um, files, I mean, obviously, you know, Microsoft Defender for Cloud is still important because there may be some things that you miss. And so Defender for Cloud can possibly pick those up. Both need to be done. And we actually kind of touched on the reason why uh, a bit earlier. So I was saying the way the infrastructure as code works is the outcome should always be the same no matter how many times you run it. What it doesn't do, it, it doesn't monitor the infrastructure to see if there are changes. It only does that when you do the deployment. So if somebody went into the portal or used one of the APIs or the Azure CLI and made a change which created a security risk, then you know, the defender is going to pick that up. Alternatively, there are some more 
complex scenarios that Defender is also going to pick up. So there's only so many things that the template analyzer can do because it's still just looking at the template. It doesn't have as much context as Defender does. So you kind of need to use both. Very similar to um, you know using uh, static code analysis and dynamic code analysis to do application code reviews. You know you'd want to look at something statically and highlight that really early on, but you still need to have a security testing process um, to actually verify the application whilst it's running. Because there's only so many things that you can verify statically uh, in code, and this is it's the same with templates. So it sounds like there might actually be multiple teams involved in this. Like, you know, not just it would be like the security team, the IAC team, but obviously the ones that created it would have to be the ones that fixed it because nobody likes someone else messing with their stuff. Um, I mean, are are there other sort of specialties like would the developers get involved or infrastructure folks? I'm just kind of curious from a role based perspective, like what you typically see. What we're seeing is that the developers are very heavily involved in defining the infrastructure requirements. because within the cloud, where everything is kind of platform as a service, then the infrastructure components are actually closer to what the developer is used to doing rather than what a IT admin is used to doing, if that makes sense. So, mm. you know, when you're defining what an application needs, you would say, okay, I've got a, a caching component, I've got the application itself, which version of uh, which language is it running what version you know and then within the database like how big is the database do i need backups like how am i configuring it what performance requirements do i have so like a lot of that the de- developer would have specific expertise in that then you've got a i guess more of a solution design and solution architecture role which is looking at okay what are the requirements of the infrastructure in terms of performance and scalability uh, reliability as well as things like you know what's our what data do we have? How are we backing it up? How are we capturing it? Um, and then you've got the the security aspect as well. So actually looking at the infrastructure and saying, okay, for that design, what security risks could we have? How are we mitigating them? Uh, and where are we doing that? The thing I really like about Bicep, if you're working with Bicep, is that a Bicep template in VS Code. So if you're using Visual Studio Code with the Bicep extension, when you're running a template, you can do a couple of things which make working with Bicep a lot easier. One is it's got a visualization tool. So it'll actually draw a infrastructure diagram of everything that's in the template automatically. So that's a really easy way of kind of sharing with people, okay, this is what the infrastructure would look like and then annotating that. Something else that you can do is if you've got a, uh, a piece of infrastructure that you want to turn into a template, instead of doing the entire resource group, there's a command in the Bicep extension to say, hey, can I just give you a specific resource in Azure and can you create the template for just that? So for example, you've got um, Redis in Azure, which is a caching service, then you'd say, okay, I've actually got one of those running. I know that it's configured properly. So you can go from VS Code and say, okay, import that into my template. So yeah, that's kind of how the teams can start to work together is actually to review the the templates and kind of have a gate in in your process. But the visualization tool is a nice way of kind of starting that conversation. Yeah, that sounds pretty slick. So before you gave us a four or five examples of the kinds of things you look for, um, from my perspective, number one is always secrets. I'm, I'm always looking for secrets in, in anything, whether it's code or configuration files or whatever. 
But what about networking? I mean, what sort of things do you look for when you're analyzing uh, infrastructure as code for networking issues? The most common one that we come across is how the application code uh, talks to a backend service like the database. So if you have a software-defined database like Azure SQL, Azure Database for Postgres or MySQL, or even Cosmos and uh, Cosmos for Postgres, they're all kind of similar. You need a way over the network for the application to connect to that database. And you know, Azure's got its own networking infrastructure, so it can connect automatically to any database, but you don't necessarily want the database server to allow connections from absolutely everybody on the internet. You know, it does have a layer seven firewall. It's also got, you know, Azure SQL and Azure Database with Postgres and MySQL. Both have uh, throttling capabilities. So, you know, if somebody does try and attack it to to work out credentials, for example, it will throttle that over time. However, if somebody created a credential with some really weak, a really weak username and password, then you've still got that on the internet and potentially you've got a big uh, exfiltration risk. So what you should do in practice is make sure that only the application connect can connect to the database to even try to authenticate. And the way that that should be done, it will be using a virtual network or a VNet. So in the template, you should define for your database that it is exposed on a VNet and the only other thing which is on that VNet is the application which needs to connect to the database. The complication there is that developers sometimes want to connect to the database via, you know, something like SQL Management Studio or one of the Postgres management tools uh, directly from their home computer or the office computer. Um, So you've got to work out whether you want to put a uh, gateway in there or like a VPN um, or add a specific firewall rule to NAT them in. Um, but what I often see is that people just put Azure SQL or Postgres on the public internet, or there's an option in um, the portal that says allow all Azure IPs. Now that doesn't just mean for their tenant um, or for even for their subscription, it means everybody who's on Azure. So Basically, that's opening yourself up to additional risk. So that's kind of one of the big uh, network security issues I kind of see in the templates. So, Anthony, uh, as a summary, can you provide some uh, capabilities that can be implemented within uh, infrastructure as code in order to better uh, the security of the infrastructure? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, if an application is self-contained, then you know, the infrastructure template should include the service principles, the identities, and also the role permissions that are required for each of the components to be able to authenticate and connect with each other. One big benefit of putting that in infrastructure as code is it's all isolated. And when you're looking at that and auditing that in the future, it's clear, you know, all of these role assignments belong to this application and this is the boundary of that application so you're not having people manually doing role assignments and then you've got to all of a sudden worry about the configuration and auditing that so if you want to have policies within your organization that say okay we definitely need these auditing features enabled we definitely want to have only these kind of minimal role assignments um 
then you can put that stuff in the template. And then whenever that template is deployed, you've already got all of your best practices, not just the, the ones that we at Microsoft define, but also the ones that you've got within your org. Um, you've automatically got that stuff um, deployed and running. So you've basically rolled out your best practices from the beginning uh, and it makes review a lot, a lot easier down the track. Hey, so Anthony, uh, one thing that we always ask our guests at the end of the episode is if you had like just one little final thought you would leave our listeners with, what would it be? Uh, I'd recommend you check out the template analyzer tool in Defender for DevOps, uh, which is in preview. It's free tool, it's open source. Have a go with it, run it over some of your templates and then have a look at the results. That's my recommendation. All right, let's, let's bring this episode to an end. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us this week. Always learn a lot on every single episode, and this was absolutely, uh, learned a great deal. I know, I know all of us did. And it's actually kind of interesting also from my perspective, being a developer, um, Mark and Gladys, mainly being infrastructure folks, don't need to offend anybody, but it's interesting that you're sort of stuck in the middle. Um, but that's good to see, right? I mean, we're seeing the world move to using these development tools for managing their infrastructure. So as I mentioned, let's bring this to a close. Uh, Again, thanks for joining us. And to all our listeners out there, thank you so much for joining us. Take care and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.